0: When it comes to animal welfare in Canada, one group stands out as the ultimate advocate. Whether strengthening animal protection legislation, prosecuting animal abusers, or representing the voiceless in court, animal justice is spearheading social change. What are the issues at the heart of their advocacy? How are they leading the legal fight for animals? We speak with their fearless leader, Camille Labchuk. next. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs and other change makers impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of Change magazine. As many of you know, I'm also the author of a book by the same name, In the Business of Change, profiling over 70 social entrepreneurs around the world and their lessons learned. Well, it just so happens that we're having a book giveaway this month. All you have to do is share this podcast episode and tag Sea Change to be eligible to win a copy. We'll announce the winners next month. And now back to the podcast. Whether animals are used for food, fashion, experiments, entertainment, or in the pet trade, animal justice lawyers fight for the legal protection that these animals need and deserve. I recently caught up with Executive Director Camille Labchuk in advance of the Canadian Animal Law Conference, which Animal Justice was organizing. We chatted about the significant issues at the forefront of their work, including protecting animals in zoos and farms, the Jane Goodall Act, designed to help animals in captivity, and ag ag laws, which effectively seek to silence animal advocates. Camille shared exciting legal advancements, ongoing challenges, And what gives Camille hope for the future of animals in Canada? Listen to our conversation to hear why Camille believes that improving the rights and protection of animals is one of the new social justice challenges of our time. I always cared about animals when I was a
1: child. I went vegetarian when I was 12 with my mom. Uh, in, you know, I grew up in PEI and some of my earliest memories about understanding people could be cruel to animals was seeing seals being clubbed on TV, and I just couldn't understand why anyone would do that. And later on, I did an undergrad degree in psychology, and I had no idea that animal advocacy could actually be a career career. Uh, you know, that was I graduated in 2005, I guess, from Allison University, and it wasn't much of a thing in Canada back then. Right. So I kind of went off. I worked for Elizabeth May in Ottawa for a couple of years as her press secretary. And it was around that time a few things started to coalesce. Uh, the first thing is I saw how much Elizabeth's legal training as a, a former lawyer really helped her in the parliamentary work that we did and helped her push for social change. And then around the same time, I got invited to go out to the seal hunt for the first time with Humane Society International, which is an animal advocacy org. And, you know, they film the seal hunt, they take photos, and they use those images to convince the European Union to shut down products of seals coming into their borders. So it took a huge chunk out of the commercial seal slaughter on the east coast of Canada. And I became really inspired by meeting all these other folks who were engaged in that field. And I thought, why don't I try this law thing and see if I can use that to help advance animals. And uh, I went off to law school. I had no idea if it was going to work, but I was lucky enough to get into U of T. And I knew it was probably strategic to be in Toronto because most of the groups were headquartered here. And a woman named Leslie Bisgold actually taught U of T's um, animal law course. And I think in 2007 was the first year they had it. And that was kind of a, you know, a major selling point for me too, was being able to take that class. So, you know, throughout law school, I got involved in as many animal law issues as I could. I actually ended up working for animal justice for a summer, thanks to a grant from
0: U of T. That's wonderful. Yeah. And kind of stuck
1: around after that point on a volunteer basis. And eventually we, you know, a few years after law school for me, we kind of grew to the point where we could actually start to hire staff, including me. So that's kind of the evolution.
0: That's great. Okay. And so animal justice... You do a lot of different things. Yeah, well, we have a lot of campaigns on the go at any time. So
1: we're asking for legislative changes to improve laws protecting animals. Um, You know, just a few current examples of that is that we've been fighting against these egg gag laws that you're looking at. I know Um, we've been working federally to get reforms to animal testing laws so that animals don't have to be tested on to approve product safety and so that they can't be. Um, you know we're supporting the Jane Goodall Act, which is this great bill that will be discussed to get 800 species plus of animals out of cruel roadside zoos and private homes. So lots of legislative campaigns, and we have a really full litigation docket too. So we try to choose precedent-setting cases that we think will have a tangible impact. So you know just this week we've got two factums due, one in a case about dog sledding where we're trying to intervene. And one in a case about a coyote killing contest in Ontario that we think is happening in contravention of the laws. So we're suing the government to uphold its own laws, which happens a lot. Jeez, Yeah. So, you know, stuff like that. We're trying to intervene in a BC case about fur farming. So mink so, farmers are challenging this ban. Uh, you know, we're suing Ontario over its egg gag laws. So the litigation side of things is really busy too. We file a lot of law enforcement complaints. So just, you know, alerting authorities to the fact that there's an issue and asking them to do their job and investigate and lay charges if appropriate. And then the final sort of pillar is education. And that's really where this conference comes in. And also our student program, which helps foster animal justice clubs on law campuses across the country and, you know, gives them opportunities to get engaged as budding lawyers. That's really
0: exciting. It's great stuff. Have you seen the rights of animals? evolving um, in, in Canada or anywhere. Have you seen a, a, an important evolution or do you see like you know that we're sort of behind the times here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the answer to that question is both. Um, right. For sure, there's been an evolution in people's thinking. I would say that 15 years ago, animal protection issues weren't so much on the radar for your average person. Uh, you know, if you ask them if they care about animals, everyone says, yes, there's very few people who will say, no, I don't think they should have any protections and I don't care if they suffer. Um, We're all deeply compassionate within, and we understand that animals suffer and feel pain and can feel joy like we do. But I would say that until more recently, it hasn't been clear to people that we have a real animal welfare problem in this country and that our laws are pretty far behind, Um, pretty far behind even countries like the States. I know it's the national pastime to feel superior to Americans, (laughs) but (laughs) when it comes to animal laws, they're actually far ahead in most respects than us. Really? So, yeah, yeah, it's stunning. I mean, many states in, this, in, in the United States now have confinement bans. So things like state level bans on keeping chickens in battery cages so small they can't spread their wings, keeping mother pigs in gestation crates for their entire pregnancy where they can't even turn around. Um, we don't have anything like that here. We leave it entirely to the farming industry to set its own standards for animal welfare. There's not a single law in the country that regulates the conditions animals experience on farms. And that's just one example, but you could look at others as well. So, you know, most of our problem is that we don't oversee companies and industries in this country that use animals. So they're essentially left to their own devices without laws for the most part and without any government oversight or inspections. Now, there's certainly some exceptions to that, but that's why I generally say that we're very far behind the times compared to even the states or certainly the European Union or Switzerland or New Zealand or even Australia. But the good news is I think we're starting to catch up in a major way and people have become really energized around the idea that we do need to do better. And we're seeing this reflected already in federal legislation. I mean, anyone who works in legislation knows it's more difficult to pass federal laws than provincial laws or municipal ones. It's just a really big beast to go after. Uh, But in 2019, the government passed, well, parliament passed for the very first time uh, a ban on keeping whales and dolphins in captivity in the future. And that was, you know, stunning precedent-setting move for a G8 country, G7 country, whatever we are now. Um, We improved our cruelty provisions slightly in the criminal code to outlaw bestiality. Um, We also passed a ban on shark fin imports in 2019. And we've seen that momentum carry through. I think the pandemic has made things a little bit more difficult, but we're now getting out of that phase and we're seeing renewed interest. You know, for instance, the Jane Goodall Act is in the Senate. Um, there's a bill to ban fur farming in the House of Commons, presented by Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, Toronto MP. Uh, and just generally, you know, politicians are always reaching out. I got an email from a provincial politician today who was newly elected and wanted to do something about puppy mills. Um, it's become an issue on people's minds, and it's
0: becoming part of our zeitgeist. In terms of, let's say, the Jane Goodall, is it, is it a bill? Is it a, what, what is it? It's a bill, yeah. Bill. It's a bill called the Jane Goodall Act. And what is it about? What, what does that say exactly?
1: Well, the Jane Goodall Act really builds on Canada's amazing progress in outlawing whale and dolphin captivity. And this time it expands that circle of compassion to include over 800 species of animals, including some really obvious animals who just don't do well in captivity. And we know this. So animals like elephants, um, like great apes, like big cats, um, larger predators who really need a lot of room and space to move around. Um, But also animals who can be dangerous, like alligators and crocodiles and and snakes, um, you know, and bears and, you know, larger animals like that. So, uh, you know, it it solves the problem of people keeping these animals in private homes. It solves the problem of roadside zoos. And it would really go a long way toward harmonizing national standards for animals in captivity. So that's really important the other thing that I think is really significant about that bill is who proposed it. So it was initially a bill from Senator Murray Sinclair, who of course Canadians know very well as the former chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And when he put forward the bill, he described it as an effort in part to rebalance our relationship with nature and with animals, and as an effort to advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, which must include our relationship with animals. And I think it's really important that now the sponsor, now that Senator Sinclair has uh, stepped out of the Senate. Um, the sponsor is now Senator Marty Klein, who's an Indigenous senator from Saskatchewan, and he has similar comments to make about the importance of that bill, not just to animals, but for reconciliation.
0: And and the fact that it's called the Jane Goodall Act is that because she had something to do with it, or yeah,
1: she's a supporter of the bill, and she I believe joined the announcement when it was when it was first released. Got it. Um, but I think she's someone who's really inspired people to care about large animals and their, their played both in the wild and in captivity. And so a lot of the folks
0: behind the bill were really inspired by what she did and thought it would be appropriate to name it in her honor. Okay. What about this, the whole personhood? Can you get into that issue and where we're at with that?
1: Yeah. So animals right now, their legal status is almost nil. They're considered property under the law. And unless there's any laws that say to the contrary, um, you know, largely people have the ability to exploit them in horrific ways for commercial purposes. So there's been a lot of discussion about how to improve the legal status of animals and give them some sort of protections or perhaps small our rights, as I would call them, um, rights to be free from different types of pain and suffering, or maybe rights to bodily liberty. Uh, the thing with, with rights is that um, they are always defined in in a way that reflects what the needs are of the individual or entity that gets rights. So you know we would say, for instance, that animals need rights to be free from pain and suffering, rights to enjoy positive family and social relationships. So both you know rights to be free from things, but also rights to positive things. Um, there's been a lot of scholarly work on how you could define this new status for animals. It's not just property. One of our Scholars Track presenters on Friday is Angela Fernandez, who's the co-organizer of the conference this year. And she's written a lot about this idea of quasi-personhood for animals. So somewhere in between property and personhood that might be a more achievable step in the short term than um, something a little bit more advanced. But the other thing that is important about improving their legal status or offering some sort of personhood, attenuated as it may be, is that animals currently have almost no ability to actually get into court on their own right now, and if they had personhood or some other status, they could have standing in court, and we think that's essential for them. So right now, when animal justice litigates, we say it's on behalf of animals, but you know technically, according to the law, it's on behalf of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't go to court and claim our constitutional rights have been violated to document conditions on farms, for instance, in the case of egg egg legislation. Uh, we make legal arguments about the Constitution and the Charter, and uh, you know sometimes there's an ability to really draw the animal welfare elements into it because there's a statute in place that pertains to that. But it's not like I can just go file a lawsuit on behalf of Lucy, the elephant in the Edmonton Zoo, who's been kept there for you know over a decade now without any any companionship. It's really difficult
0: to to seek redress for an individual animal. I understand. And so, and did you have intervenor status with R versus Chen, or what? What was that situation?
1: Yeah, well, so, so the case was about, you know, what's an appropriate sentence for somebody convicted of an animal cruelty offense. And there's always been a temptation that we've seen in so many areas, right? Not just animal rights, but anytime there's a wrong done, the temptation is to say, throw the book at this person, um, you know, make them suffer for what they've done to this animal, lock them up, throw away the key, impose a harsh punishment. And that's happened for sure in the animal protection field for many years in the animal law field. But there's been a recent shift away from this idea of being extremely punitive and seeking jail and trying to deprive somebody of of their own liberty uh, for a few reasons one of them being sort of the equity issues involved with incarceration and imprisonment and the criminal justice system i think a lot of people are increasingly recognizing that there's racism imbued in that system um, classism imbued in that system and it disproportionately affects poor and marginalized people Uh, and so one of the things that we one of the points we wanted to make in this case is that there's not really any evidence that jailing people and imposing harsh sentences results in better outcomes for animals. And instead of just focusing on retribution and punishment, we should be thinking about what practical steps a judge can take during a sentencing hearing to actually make things right for that animal. So how can you redress the harm in some way through financial compensation? Hmm. How can you um, you know help somebody not offend again? That would be through something like counseling instead of jail, which is proven to increase recidivism rates. Um, or you know, how can you just keep that person away from animals so they're not in a position where an issue could arise. And that could be done through uh, something called a prohibition order where someone is not allowed to have custody of an animal for a period of time or potentially for life. So we were trying to promote and, and the, the, the court of appeal, I think really engaged with those arguments and accepted a lot of what we had to say that if part of the, you know, point of, you know, prosecuting people for cruelty is to um, help animals in some way, that um, there's a lot of different creative solutions judges should be looking at.
0: Okay. Is there any other issues that are top of mind right now to you that suggests our evolution of sorts with the way we're we're engaging with, connecting with, living with um, animals in our lives?
1: Yeah, you know, maybe I'll say something first about farming, then maybe another issue too, but I think... um, Farming is is a big theme of the conference. It comes up in a number of different panels, and the reason for that is because the, the largest group of animals that we use as a society is farmed animals. We killed 851 million of them in 2021, and that doesn't even include fishes. Uh, we don't actually count the individual lives of fishes that we consume. Their lives are measured in tons. So. You compare that to the next largest group of animals that we use, which is probably animals used in experimentation, and that number is likely under 10 million. So 850 million, 10 million. It it represents a really big problem. So there's been a lot of focus by the animal law movement on farmed animals because they probably suffer some of them, the, the, the worst abuses, and there's so many of them. So uh, you know, one thing Jody's going to speak about is agricultural exceptionalism and how we all kind of assume that firms are regulated, that animal farming is regulated in some way. And for the most part, it's not. There's not really many welfare standards, if any, for firms. Um, firms benefit from a tremendous exemptions from things like the carbon pricing system. Um, many labor laws are exempt from. They've been just given this you know, massive boost by egg gag laws, which of course make it illegal to do an investigation on the farm. So it's essentially a free speech, free zone. Uh, so You know, that theme always comes up. And so, of course, there's an egg egg panel, there's the farming panel, and there's a few panels as well about solutions, so how we get out of the system. And some of them are speaking about, you know, tackling food waste, which could save a lot of animals' lives. Um, One panel is looking at a transition away from a slaughter-based system towards a plant-based slash cultured meat um, food supply that would be better for animals and people and the planet. So that's a big theme. The proposed Whale Sanctuary, Nova Scotia, which is, uh, do you know much about that sanctuary? No, tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So it's a group called the Whale Sanctuary Project, which recognizes there's this problem of all these whales and dolphins in captivity. We see the writing is on the wall for captivity, yet there's places like Marineland that were grandparented in to this legislation who still have whales and dolphins right now. And the reason is just that there's nowhere for these animals to go. So it's impractical to say you can't have them as of today. You have to say no more, no more breeding, no more acquisition. But the problem becomes what happens to these animals when people just, you know, start refusing to go to marine parks because they don't want to see sad dolphins swimming in circles in a tank. And the solution we hope is going to be sanctuaries like this one. So Nova Scotia was actually selected as the first global site of, of a sanctuary by this group. Um, after extensive research in, you know, BC, I think um, elsewhere on the American coastline and Nova Scotia, they selected a site and it's a large cove that can be netted off. So the whales or dolphins would go in there they would have much more space in their company or than they're accustomed to right now. And they'd be able to live some sort of semblance of a life that's, you know, it's not complete freedom in the ocean. Um, but certainly much better than living in a tank. Um, obviously they can't just be released into the ocean because they That's were born the in captivity yeah. and they've got no survival skills. Is there anything else that you wanted to say on this topic? You know, the only other thing that I think is just worth mentioning briefly is the uh, one panel I'm really excited about is the Alternatives to Animal Testing and Scientific Research Panel. Um, that features three folks who've got lots of experience in this field, including Dr. Charu Chandra She runs an institute at the University of Windsor called the um, Canadian Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods that's working on replacing animal methods with new scientific um, procedures. And it's incredible, um, you know, organs on the chip, um, you know, skin propagation or, or skin culturing to, you know, test chemicals on instead of human or animal skin. Uh, just really science-based, evidence-based techniques for getting animals out of research. and. She's a great speaker and, and the work is exciting, but I also think it's important that we're highlighting this because the Canadian government still doesn't fund that work domestically. Um, I think there's hope that they might in the future, but right now compared to other you know, G7 countries, we don't have um, you know, government support for this work. And it, we think it has to be part of this national
0: strategy to get animals out of testing that hopefully will be enshrined in law soon. And I guess the ongoing challenges for someone in your position is... There's public opinion, but that that I think is behind you more and more today. I would I would do legislative for sure policy. I mean, these are all challenges that you face on a day to day basis. Um, do you have hope? Absolutely. I think improving rights and protections for animals
1: is one of the new social justice challenges of our time. And uh, we're already seeing just tremendous shifts in people's attitudes, politicians willing to take these issues more seriously. Uh, people and consumers just rising up and demanding better, which I think is important. Um, You know, I view animal justice and the conference and this community as being in the business of trying to make social change. And I used to think that our laws were just a reflection of people's attitudes and that, you know, as attitudes change, our laws catch up to reflect them. And I see now that there's a massive disparity between our attitudes about animals, which are great, and the laws that actually protect them. And the reason for that is that there's so much money to be made from exploiting them. And you know, forcing them to suffer to produce consumer products. And the folks who profit handsomely and make billions and billions of dollars through the meat industry, experimentation, the fur industry, they're excellent lobbyists because they want to protect their profits. So I know one of the challenges that we have to overcome before we get from A to, to B, from here to there, is um, you know, encouraging even more people to become active and, and make it clear that it's no longer acceptable in 2022 for animals to have
0: so few protections, but I feel very confident we'll get there. Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Beardbaum.